one-two, one-two mic testing. Hear me? Okay. Sorry. Apologies. Let's turn to our Bibles now as we open God's Word in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy and chapters, uh, chapter 2, verses um, 14 to 26. It's page 1182 in a church Bible. So if you have your the church Bibles, the blue ones there, it's 1182. What I'll do now is I'll read our passage. We have 13 verses today, and then I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll delve in. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead to people Oh, it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity." Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and, the, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. It's God's word for us today. Let's pray. Abba, Father, we come to you now as we um, be under your word. Help us to be teachable. Give us receptive hearts today. Help me now, Lord, as I preach. I feel very weak this morning, but I pray that uh, your word will come true and the truths of it will bless our hearts, will edify us, and that they, we may be spurred on to obey this week. After hearing your word, I pray. All this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to continue our study in this wonderful letter uh, from Paul to Timothy, perhaps the very last letter he would ever write before his public execution. And I love this fact about Paul that even though, you know, his circumstance is dire, his perspective uh, transcends his dire circumstance. Although his death was imminent. He was more concerned about the spiritual well-being of the church in Ephesus than his own situation. We've been learning so far that Paul, knowing his imminent death, encourages Timothy to accept his calling and to work ever so earnestly and fervently to be someone who is committed to something much bigger than himself. Like the metaphors we heard last week of the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. 
And Paul can ask Timothy not to be ashamed of the gospel, not to be ashamed of Paul, and to even come see him in, per, uh, in prison because Jesus' grace is a source of power that enables him to sacrifice willingly and to endure all kinds of challenges to accomplish a greater goal, a real dedication to Jesus and his gospel, whatever it takes. Hardships and sacrifices is part and parcel of the Christian life. Many fall away and ultimately proving that they are not part of God's people because the call and the cost is just too much. The small gate is that small and the narrow road is that narrow. It filters the committed and the dedicated. The denying of oneself and the following of Jesus gets very real. So today, Christians, Let's own it as badges of honor and continue to persevere. Paul has exemplified that in his life. So now the baton, as it were, is being handed down. I love the discipleship that's modeled here for us. May we as the local church here in Passage West, um, in a similar way, also model this. Not just talking about it in theory, but living the gospel ourselves so it can be seen and can be, uh, so we can disciple one another effectively in our own homes and as we serve one another here as well in church. I am encouraged that our leaders here in Passage lead us so well to Brendan, to Shane, to Steve, leading us by serving, rolling up their sleeves, as it were, and working alongside us. But there is a point to all of this. Jesus' resurrection is our sure hope. It won't be like this forever. The path to glory has been paved for us by our Savior, our glorious Savior. God's promises are ours in Christ for those who will take the risk of trusting and following Him. And so as we look in our text now from 14 to 26, I just want to highlight three things, three points that an approved godly worker is to be and what he is to do to be effective in gospel work. This applies to all believers, okay? So don't just switch off just because Timothy was a leader in the local church. Most of the principles here are applicable to us today. There's so much in this passage that I won't be, cover, uh, be able to cover in detail but in the time that I have, but we'll do our best. And so the godly worker approved by God guards against fruitless arguments and is steady in the word, says point one. One who pursues holiness and righteousness and then thirdly, corrects with gentleness and patience. So number one point, one, guarding against fruitless arguments. Look at verse 14. Paul shifts from his personal address to Timothy to the broader leadership team in the church back in Ephesus, telling Timothy to remind them of the invaluable lessons he shared so far, which included that lovely and profound poem in the last passage in verses 11 to 12. Paul instructs Timothy to guide others away from pointless and fruitless arguments. The caution here serves two purposes. Firstly, to prevent unnecessary strife over trivial matters in Scripture, which, by the way, doesn't mean to take a shallow view of Scripture, but to keep the main thing the main thing, not majoring on the minors. And secondly, to warn them of the harmful and deadly effects of these debates, which can lead to the spiritual downfall of its listeners. 
false teachings wrapped in wordy debates sow seeds of confusion and division and so jeopardizes the spiritual well-being of the church. Now, for me personally, I love debates and probably have a, a reputation for being some, of, uh, some sort of a provocateur. Those who know me know that I like to play devil's advocate in many discussions and have sometimes inadvertently evoked strong emotions in people simply by using words or the way I use words and bringing in concepts that I don't necessarily uh, personally hold but embody it in such a way that is perceived as if I did. And so the reactions uh, tend to be strong. I've caused awkward silences, heated exchanges, quickly changing the topic, moving swiftly on. These are not just small talk, you know, not just um, weather chit-chat, although you'd be surprised, you know, people can get heated over weather. Um, but these topics sometimes, you know, touching on doctrinal, moral, ethical issues. I've been learning since, and still learning, uh, to curb my tongue. And so thank you for your patience um, to my gracious wife, most of all the church leaders, close friends. Thank you for advising me, um, for reprimanding me, correcting me. Advising me to say, you can't just say that. Don't stir the pot or phrase that another way. Or another really good advice I got was to, before you say anything, admit and declare that this is your own personal opinion or, you know, don't just come in as if very uh, offensive. Anyway, the point there, you get my point, is that words and mouths are a, uh, a main central theme in Scripture. Ungodliness and pride usually oozes out through words. It ruins the hearers. Look at verse 14. You know the Greek word used there for ruin? I'd say we know this word. It's the Greek word, the transliteration is catastrophe. And that very same word is used by Peter in his letter in relation to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So you know the scale and the devastation. It tells us the destructive power we have in our words. So we need to be self-controlled people wielding this power responsibly. In contrast to this, Paul paints a, a picture of Timothy as a diligent worker striving to please his ultimate boss, God himself. Look at verse 15. Rather than seeking the approval of people, Timothy is reminded to prioritize pleasing the Lord above all else. There are many distractions that can lure Christians away from the main focus of pleasing God tempting them to prioritize human approval over divine satisfaction. To be this approved worker of God is to be someone who needs not be ashamed of their efforts. We've seen Paul bringing this up in the previous chapter as well. This boldness in faith that fortifies against the temptation to shy away from hardship and persecution. And this same boldness is closely linked to the ability to accurately handle the word of truth. That's verse 15. So this dichotomy that Paul presents here, on the one hand, denouncing frivolous disputes while pushing a deep and diligent study of Scripture, this reveals the essence of Christian discernment. Some issues will require unwavering defense, especially when it comes to the defense of the integrity of the gospel, while being able to identify 
mere distractions. And I love seeing us being under God's Word every week and also during the week around the Bible. That means that every week you are being equipped, you are growing in knowledge, not just being able to defend the faith, but also discern between crucial battles and fruitless arguments. Verse 16, he cautions there. Paul cautions Timothy against entangling himself in contentious debates with false teachers who fixate on superficial and unspiritual matters. You see, Timothy and that church is also suffering because there are false teachers in Ephesus. Irreverent babble, he calls them in verse 16. This has detrimental consequences. Not only does it fail to draw others to Christ, but instead it leads them astray. Ungodliness is condemned throughout Scripture, and Paul is warning and urging believers to renounce it and to embrace godliness. In his previous letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy, written about over a year before this one, godliness and godly teachings was a prominent message. Paul calls himself, in his other letter to Titus, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith and God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accord with godliness. In other words, which lead to godliness. Godliness should be the goal of every believer, especially those who seek to lead others in the church. And so giving undue attention to distracting arguments is like introducing a disease into the body of Christ. Look at verse 17. Later on, Paul mentions Luke, right, in his personal remarks in chapter 4. So he might have had some medical insights on how this infection spreads. Gangrene, we see here in verse 17, used by secular writers in the first century is a sore, a sore that eats at the flesh. Left untreated, it continues to infect more and more parts of the body, spreading further and further. I don't know why I did this, but I looked it up in Google Images, gangrene, and it looks like death. So with that vivid image in mind, in a similar way, the heresies that these false teachers propagate can spread through the whole congregation, which causes much pain in the church body. Hymenaeus and Philetus were called out to be false teachers. Paul had already mentioned Hymenaeus and Alexander in his previous letter to Timothy, and he says this about them, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, Philetus joins the group. So now you can see the influence. You can see this insidious influence is evident, spreading spiritual decay. Alexander gets a mention again later on, still unrepentant. Well, what kinds of false teachings that are being spread here? I know, I'm sure there were many false teachings, but one Paul mentions here is the issue of the resurrection. And this issue of resurrection, um, not like the one in Corinth where they deny the resurrection. No, these guys claim it has already happened. But Paul was clear in his letter to the Thessalonians. He says this in chapter 4, verse 14. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, true Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord that we who are alive, 
who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So if the resurrection had happened already, then Jesus should have been already here. And those uh, who are His should have been taken up. This idea that there won't be a coming resurrection uh, that happened already is quite appealing to people who have lived indulgent lives. Those who have only focused on pleasure and haven't thought much about death would prefer if there were no resurrection or if it already happened. We're not explicitly told in Scripture why these people deny the biblical teaching on the resurrection. Some suggest that they believed it, it already happened with Christ uh, in His resurrection. Remember in Matthew 27, the tombs broke open and others were resurrected with Jesus. Others may have confused resurrection with spiritual rebirth and glorification of believers, attributing only to the soul. It's a very uh, Gnostic type of thinking. And others only accepted a, a more metaphorical resurrection through childbirth and baptism. But the resurrection that we hold is a bodily resurrection. You will be resurrected in your own body, just like Jesus. And so today we have a lot of wacky um, speculations out there. And this happens when you go outside of Scripture, when you deviate from the truth, all sorts of ideas uh, uh, come in. And throughout history, Various groups, including the Sadducees in ancient times and later followers, rejected the idea of a bodily resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. You would be too if you have no hope. Even today, people are finding comfort in the fantasy that there's nothing beyond this life, a more nihilistic perspective. And so they pursue a more pleasure-filled, fleshly, uh, hedonistic kind of lifestyle. But verse 19 tells us, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are His, and that everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Verse 19 says, This is a quote from the Old Testament, which reinforces the notion that God intimately knows those who belong to Him, despite how persuasive these false teachers might be to some people. And Paul challenges these falsehoods. Uh, the way he challenges them is using God's Word. Remember Jesus when He was tempted in the desert? What did He use to combat the devil and his temptations? God's Word. The firm foundation is the cornerstone of truth. He then cites Numbers. This quote is from Numbers, chapter 16. Um, it says there in verse 5, And he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and bring him near to him, and he will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. The context in the, of the quote in Numbers is an instruction to depart from false leaders, Korah and others, men who had rebelled against the Lord, and what had happened next, if you read the narrative, was imminent, um, immediate judgment of their sin. The ground opened up quite literally and swallowed the families of these men. And the followers of these men, they were consumed by fire. So quite literally, when it says depart from them is to get away, not only just to not to associate with them, but 
get out of their close proximity because literally judgment will happen to them. So don't just associate with false teachers. Get away because they're in the trajectory of God's judgment. But as our Lord says, our Lord Jesus, He says this in John, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. There is comfort in the fact that the Lord keeps us. You know, it's not our intellectual astuteness ultimately that keeps us safe from false doctrines. We rely on God's grace for spiritual guidance and protection. Godly men and women depart from immoral conduct and false teachings. Another way a God-approved worker can keep themselves effective in ministry is by pursuing holiness and righteousness. And that's my second point. Pursuing holiness and righteousness. Look in verse 20. Paul gives us this analogy comparing believers to vessels found in a wealthy household crafted from different materials and assigned distinct purposes. Gold and silver vessels symbolize those esteemed for their purity and value, often reserved for special occasions and noble functions. The other vessels, made from wood and clay, represent the more common everyday utensils used for more mundane tasks. You know, my mother-in-law, John's mom, <laughs> my wife's mom, uh, in their house, she has these um, china and that only makes its appearance during Christmas and special occasions. And they don't go in the dishwasher. No, these are especially hand wash. And these are special and precious, very beautiful to look at and they're artist uh, with their artistic design. And then they're displayed in the cabinet. I hope my kids will never bake them. <laughs> but, um, but Paul outlines for us the importance of believers aspiring and striving to be vessels for honorable use, like the gold and silver vessels. Godly workers are consecrated for divine service, not tarnished by the ordinary affairs of life. Timothy is encouraged to pursue spiritual purification, cleansing himself from what is considered dishonorable. And this, we've already heard, involves abstaining from sin and erroneous teachings. Not only are we to be set apart and holy, but we are to be useful to the master of the house. Look in verse 21. The Lord is the master of the house in this analogy. As you may have noticed in Paul's letters, there is good work to be done. Good works that God has prepared for us in advance to do. If you trust the Lord Jesus today, striving to follow Him, there is much good work for you to do. And these works are not just for Christian ministry workers, not just for missionaries, not just for elders and deacons, as if there is a category for a passive, non-working follower of Jesus. No, all of us are to be workers of good for the Lord. In Ephesians, Paul writes, chapter 2, 10, he says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk with them. In this letter, later on in chapter 3, it says of the Word, All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In contrast, Paul says this in his letter to Titus regarding the mere talkers and deceivers. He says this, 
They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Again, he writes another letter to Philemon regarding the once useless slave Onesimus has now become useful. He says in verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and me. I think Paul was being funny, uh, play on words there, because the name Onesimus quite literally means useful. And useful for what? Useful for good works, gospel work. And how do I know this? Well, if you read on, he says, I am sending him, Paul says of Onesimus, who is my very heart, back to you, Philemon. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. And if Onesimus was helping Paul, we can be sure that his assistance contributed to the advancement of the gospel. As the Christian becomes more devoted to the work that God has prepared to be useful to him, to be set apart, there are things as well that we must uh, abstain from. In addition to avoiding irreverent babbles, quarreling with words and rejecting ungodliness, he says to Timothy and to us, flee from youthful passions. Look at verse 22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. He says youthful to Timothy because, well, Timothy at the time was, was young, uh, likely in his early 30s or, and unmarried. He faced the same struggles with youthful passions as many do today. Paul is being very clear here. Not, not only was Timothy to guard against sexual temptation, but he was also to actively flee from it. So the younger ones of us here, I'd say for all ages, how is our purity going? Are we in a state where we can be useful to God? Or is our sin that easily entangles get in the way of doing the good work? Do a Joseph on it. Make a runner for it. Run out of the house. Let's preoccupy ourselves with pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And I love this part. We don't have to do it alone. Look at verse 22 again. Along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. The writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 10. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Our church here in Passage West, the local body of Christ, is the environment we can practice our good works. We get to love one another here. We can work towards maintaining peace and unity here. We can spur one another here. We can serve together. Fill the form for that upcoming Easter events, if you have not already. We can be creative in how else we can display the love of Jesus to the wider community in passage, to the lost. We are called to be set apart, yes, but not apart from each other. We are set apart as a people together unto the Lord. Let's be useful to our Master.
And finally, my, my third point. A, a worker approved by God is able to correct with gentleness and patience. Look at verse 23. Paul circles back to the controversies here that breeds quarrels. It's hard not to get caught up in this sometimes, but it's important that we avoid these because what's at stake, at stake is the unity and peace that we have. These things cause division. The result of these useless arguments is that they lead more uh, to more useless arguments. They set Christian brothers and sisters against each other for no good reason. Godly men and women are not to be quarrelsome. But the emphasis here is on men because of the leadership context, as Paul writes in his previous letter to Timothy regarding men not to be quarrelsome, and then the elders as well. The qualification to be an elder is not to be quarrelsome. And conversely, um, the obvious sign of a false teacher is their quarrelsome trait. Look at the um, verse, uh, First Timothy chapter, um, chapter 6, verse 3 says, If anyone teaches a, di a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up and with, uh, with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and so on. A reminder from the last letter, how are you holding up, Timothy? Are you still patiently enduring? Verse 24, be kind to everyone. Why? Because our Lord is kind, able to teach, patiently enduring evil as you correct your opponents with gentleness. Do these things. Put up with difficult and contrary people, even your enemies who teach falsehoods, because you never know God will grant them repentance. And look at verse 26. That they may finally come to their senses and to escape from the snare of the devil. You see, all of us today, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer today, all of us are workers. We work to an end. Are you a godly worker? Or are you a worker of iniquity? We all practice something. Do we practice godliness? Or do we practice lawlessness? We all do something. Are we doing good works? Or are we evil doers? It's either one or the other, isn't it? The Lord Jesus endured and put up with people like us. It might be very easy for me to point the evil that, and the wicked that's outside of here. But no, holy God pursued you and I, sinful individuals. That's the only reason we can be even here, um, be here today. Jesus confronted false teachers in his day, but he had compassion for them. For quarrelsome and bickering disciples who were constantly at each other, who had selfish ambitions, Jesus was patient with them. And the Lord, our Lord Jesus, ultimately endured the most concentrated evil on that cross, taking on all our sin. You see, Paul knows this deeply in his heart. He called himself 
with no exaggeration, the chief of all sinners. And the reason he can endure and persevere even to death is because his Savior endured death, even death on the cross for ungodly people like you and I. And so to finish, let me read this uh, part of Scripture to remind us and to humble me. This piece of Scripture from Corinthians. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so to finish, I'll just say this to us. Let's love one another this week. Let's love others in the world this week. Let's pursue godliness, holiness, and righteousness this week. So, uh, and we can do this because we are given this by our Lord Jesus, by His grace. He is not, um, He's only asking us to do what He Himself has done. Let's confess our sins. Let's forsake our sins. And whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Let's be useful to our Master. Let's pray. Abba Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your Word, because it's true. We thank You, Lord, that it, these are instructions that lead to life. Help us, Lord, to follow it in faith, to obey it, Lord. Help us to strive and do the hard work, the good work. It's not easy to deny ourselves, and we are to take up our cross daily. Forgive us, our Father God, for we are sinful people. We're not quite there yet, Lord, but we trust in your Spirit that He will bring us home, Lord. He, he will mold us to be like the Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord, to persevere. I know it's hard. We, we suffer different things, different challenges and trials in life. But, Lord, your calling is the same, to live for you. Help us, Lord, this week. And thank you, Lord, for your word. In your Son's precious name, amen. And as a response,